Hi, my name is Chris Jensen, and this is my life, and welcome to it. You're listening to this on January 9th, but I'm recording it on January 8th, which is Friday. It's been one heck of a week. Um, and I've got, you know, some opinions and strong feelings about the occurrences of the week. But that's not what this podcast is about. However, before I, before I end today's uh, episode... Um, I'll make a brief mention on what my day was like on Wednesday. So today, I'm finally going to get around to talking about my friend and teacher, Elijah. So, Elijah um, came across my radar um, by means of a friend, right? And I was looking for a Sufi teacher. I'd driven to the Bay Area, uh, and I got to a place, and he, and the guy that I was really looking for wasn't there. Um, and then I heard about Elijah uh, here in Sacramento, and, you know, that, that phrase, uh, uh, sentence from The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy says something to the effect of, right at the end she says, you know, that everything she was ever looking for was right in her own backyard. And, uh, and I've applied that more than once in my life. But this was the first major time that I did so. Elijah had a, a shop, a store, down in West, uh, in um, old, old Sacramento, Old Town Sacramento. And that was the only way I knew how to get a hold of him. So I walked down there and went into it and, and Elijah's shop um, when you first walk in it can be a little bit overwhelming to the senses um, the smell of incense the sound of music Elijah would always have some type of world music or chant playing uh, overhead and then just the amount of things in the store um, just you know jewelry cds clothing um you know calendars statuary religious art you know items books just it, it was amazing absolutely amazing so i went in there and uh i had when i had my opportunity to speak with one of the employees you know i asked if if elijah was around and i learned that it was pretty much hit and miss to get a hold of Elijah. Uh, he uh, actually did not live in Sacramento and only came to the store uh, occasionally. But when he did come to the store, it was usually in the afternoon and then he would stay, uh, you know, and close. So I don't remember that first time whether or not he was in. Um, but I ended up going back until I was able to meet him. And uh, 
and we hit it off. Um, uh, you know, he started, uh, I think he gave me something to read, a little pamphlet or something, just a, you know, a basic primer on the Sufi order. Some prayers, I think, maybe. Uh, and um, there were a handful of others, maybe three others that were interested uh, in studying Sufism. And so we started um, holding meetings. I think the first few meetings were uh, held at his shop in Old Sacramento. Um, the shop itself had an upstairs and a downstairs. He'd built the upstairs pretty much, I think. Uh, the downstairs had always been there, and there was some space to put some chairs up, and uh, and then we would we would talk, and he would start um, explaining to us the uh, the life of. Uh, Sufi student, um, what would be, you know, our path and should we choose to follow it? You know, these are the things that we would, we would do to move us along, um, and, uh, enhance our, our spiritual growth. Uh, so we probably did that for, oh gosh, I don't know a year or so. I just, I don't really recollect. But I remember one day, um, Elijah finally said that at least two of us were ready for our um, first initiation. And it was at that first initiation that I also received a name. Uh, oftentimes when people joined the Sufi order, they received a name. Uh, a new name, and the name uh, was supposed to be indicative of uh, that person's personality, whether it was a potential that they could grow into uh, or something that they were, you know, uh, living with at the time. But just like, you know, many times in the Old Testament, uh, you know, Abraham was originally named Abram, and his name was changed to Abraham. Uh, we know that Paul, St. Paul was originally Saul. Um, Israel was originally Jacob. Um, names were changed at uh, very important times in that person's life. And the new name um, often would indicate something about either their character or their life path out in front of them. And at some point I'll share the name that I was given uh, I'm not ready to do so right now, um, but e eventually. I want to make sure I understand exactly uh, what it meant. Um, and I know what I was told when I received the name, uh, but it's a very special, special thing for me, and I've not shared it with very many people. But I'm going to share it with you eventually. So our friendship grew. I mean, it was more than just a student-teacher relationship. You know, one of the um, one of the maxims of many spiritual paths is that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And here I'd been doing all these all these things. You know, and I had a friendship with Sirigyan when he taught me yoga, the Kundalini yoga. Um, we were friends. We we hit it off really well. Um, and I met a lot of people who were teachers, but apparently I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. 
Um, and then Elijah showed up, you know, and was I ready? I, I, you know, it's hard to evaluate one's own spiritual, uh, growth or station in life. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure, but I know that, uh, Elijah showed up at a time when I was really ripe to begin to really dive deep into, um, the world of mysticism and, um, a deeper meditation and, and a, a life more of what I considered to be the spirit. I still approached the spiritual path from a very personal place. Um, it wasn't so much that, um, I was, wa I was wanting to be part of a community or, 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 you know, that I was doing something for others. It was very much selfish. Um, I was still a little bit selfish in that, um, I wanted to grow closer to God for me personally. Um, and I, I guess God just met me where I was at at that point and said that even in my ignorance, um, I would begin to grow in a certain direction. You know, it's like the plant. The plant will turn and grow towards the light. You know, if you have a, a plant in your house and uh, a window um, and the light, the sunlight comes through the window, pretty soon that plant will will bend towards that light. It's called uh, uh, phototr phototropic. Um, uh, so it turns towards the light. You know, it wants that sunlight and the chlorophyll and photosynthesis, and that's how it receives some nourishment. So it's got that incentive to do that. But as I began to focus on God, I began to bend in a certain direction, and it very much led me uh, into some very interesting spaces. Um, the thing, one of the things about Elijah's shop is it, it provided opportunity to further, to have further exploration, right? So the thing about the Sufi order in the West, the way Hazrat Nayak Khan presented Sufism was he did it in a non-religious context, right? The Sufism that he learned was within the Islamic context, and most Sufism is today. But he was presenting Sufism in a way that you did not have to become a Muslim in order to become a student of Sufism in the West. Now, a lot of the um, Sufi practices that we did, the Sufi names that people received, some of them were um, uh, Arabic, uh, some of them were Islamic. Um, however, many of them were also from other religions. Uh, one of the things that Hazrat Nayak Khan developed was um, a universal religious service uh, where all the different major religions were honored and represented. And in this shop, um, I had the opportunity to look at all kinds of different things. Um, esoteric, Kabbalah, astrology, um, Sufism, of course, many books there. I have many books on Sufism that I got from Elijah's shop. Um, 
And one of the things that Elijah would um, really encourage me to do was to uh, um, really absorb world music. So uh, at some point, you know, I'd be down at the shop with him and he'd say, take a listen to this, you know. Uh, and I bought a lot of music from him over the, over the years to listen to that touched my heart, that reached into my spirit, that could help me to, um, focus my, my meditation, my concentration. Um, a lot of sound, um, can actually, you know, there's this thing in, in, uh, in sound is called a carrier wave. It's how radio works, basically. You set up a carrier wave, and then the actual transmission, in, for lack of a better term, it rides that carrier wave, right? And so music can sometimes become that carrier wave for our spirits, um, that we can ride that carrier wave, and it can take us places. If you remember, Hazrat Nayak Khan was a musician, and the school of Sufism, or the Chisti order, is an order of musicians and music. Um, and uh, one of the one of the best books he he uh, he didn't write the book, I don't think. It was a collection of his lectures and talks and teachings, the mysticism of sound and music. Um, I even have a, a book here that I purchased recently. It's a brand. It's a new book, and it talks about harmonics and um it, it's pretty modern sounding but he quotes the author quotes from Hazrat Nayak Khan and I went and back into the uh the back of the of the book and he is referenced a bunch of times so he still is making an influence on on music and how we hear music and how music is produced and what music does to our soul our spirit and so Elijah would uh, um, turn me on to various musicians and forms of music and styles of music that would make you dance or you'd want to sing with it or calm down, all these different emotions, right? And uh, I, I probably wouldn't have um, done that on my own. I wasn't musically curious that way. Um but it, it, the other thing that that did was it took me out of pop music culture. Um, so during the time that I spent with Elijah and I, that I spent practicing Sufism, um, I was very much out of the mainstream musical culture. And so there's a lot of musicians that I just, I'm not familiar with. Um, and it's, that has carried on into this day. I've never been much of a pop musician pop music person. Um, I don't recognize a lot of the names of the performers. I don't, I don't, I couldn't tell you the name of a song, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, but I have still remained curious about world music. That's a carryover of my time with Elijah for sure. Well, over time, what would happen is that I would show up, oh, probably early evening um, and just, you know, just browse and shop and wait for Elijah to be available to chat. And it wasn't long that he began to trust me 
um, and invited me downstairs as he was doing like receiving packages. You know, you get a package in the mail or the post and uh, then you got to unwrap it and you got to, you know, get it ready for sale. And so he was doing all of that. I'd be downstairs and we would talk about stuff. We would talk about world events. We would talk about um, various uh, Sufi teachings of Hazrat Nayak Khan, among others, Pir Vilayat. Um, and, you know, slowly and surely we develop, a, I thought, a, a true friendship that was very heart-centered. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the symbols, well, no, the main symbol, the symbol for the Sufi order of the West. And some of you have seen this. It's uh, been appropriated in other ways. But it's a heart with wings. And on that heart is a star and a crescent. And it all has a lot of symbolism. But the main thing is the heart. And it's a very heart-centered practice. Um, and so we became like, you know, brothers. We weren't too far different in age. He was a, a mite older than me, but not much. Um, and uh, so I'd go down there in the early evening um, and just sort of hang out, you know. And then after the store closed, right around 10, I think, I think it was 10, you know, he'd lock the door and then we would, um, we would, we would talk. We would, we would, I would help him with some of the work and, uh, and, and we would just chat, you know, I'd tell him my life story. I learned things about him, um, became very personal and, uh, it sort of transcended the old, uh, you know, the distant relationship where, you know, you're friends, but you're not, you haven't really opened yourselves up and told some secrets and um, shared the good and the bad together. It's very rare. At least for me, it's rare. I don't do that with very many people. But with him, in a very short amount of time, we both grew to trust each other uh, greatly. Um, and, uh, it was a, a an amazing experience, um, just for me to to be with him and uh, to learn from him. He uh, he no longer lives in uh, Sacramento. I do believe he's still connected with the with the shop, but not in uh, a seriously active way, from what I understand. And um, I thought that after I've launched this episode where I've talked about Elijah. Maybe I can talk him into actually being a guest on the podcast. We'll see. I hope so. One of the things that I remember, um, Elijah at the time lived on a mountain um, outside of Grass Valley, between Grass Valley and Nevada City, I think, which is uh, northeast of Sacramento. If you go up Interstate 80, you go up Interstate 80 to Auburn, and then from Auburn, you take Highway 49, into Grass Valley and, and Nevada City. And uh, he had structured uh, a full-day retreat at his house. And like I said, there wasn't a lot of us. But there were a few. Um, and uh, so we got there. And if I, if I remember right, it was, it was early spring. It wasn't quite spring-spring, but it was early spring. It was wet outside and a bit cold. Um, and so there was time of teaching, there was time for meditation, 
There is something, there's something that we do that, or did, that's called zikr, and I'll explain what that is in a little bit. Uh, and then we took a break, and people could, you know, go for a walk and do whatever they needed to do just to take some, a break time. I decided to go for a walk. And, uh, you know, he's living on a mountain. There's lots of, lots of space. People lived on acreage, right? There's not, houses aren't like door to door kind of thing. So I go for a little walk and uh, I start walking down the road. And lo and behold, in the middle of this road is a salamander just standing there. I go up to the salamander and I poke it. It doesn't move. So, and it's in the middle of the street. So I pick it up and I'm, I carry it back to the house. And, uh, and after it warmed up, it started moving around. Apparently salamanders, when they get really cold, they go into a kind of a, a trance state. They go into, uh, they mobilize. I, I don't know if it's to conserve energy or what it is, but, um, yeah, they just sort of stop moving. You know, there are some frogs that can actually freeze. Uh, and then when the weather turns warm again, they, they thaw out and they're fine and they keep living, but they were absolutely frozen solid. So, um, maybe that's what this salamander was doing. It was getting ready to just hunker down and hibernate, do its thing. But as I carried it, my body heat warmed it up and it started, you know, moving around. And we talked about it. And one of the things that I had grown accustomed to, uh, and one of the things that is taught by um, Piro Murshid Hazrat Nayak Khan is that nature is a book. And we can learn uh, about God and the world and life th through reading the book of nature. And so I also looked for um, meaningful events that I could then um, create a story around and interpret somehow. And so I looked at this salamander and um, thought a couple of things. Number one, I saved its life. It probably would have gotten run over by a car if I had not taken it off the middle of the street. Um, and then through my through the warmth of my hands, it became it came back. So it was like a it was almost like a, almost like a spirit, spirit animal for me at the time, right? The salamander. And it walked around. I set it down. It walked around. And eventually I took it back outside and set it out. But it reminded me about the heart and about life and how when life is cold, we can shut down. And at that point, we don't experience life. We're alive, but we really don't experience the fullness and the vitality of living. But as we move closer to the source of heat, we begin to thaw and soften, and life comes back. And so for me, you know, as I was moving closer to how I understood God at the time, that my life would thaw and the hardness of my heart would thaw and become softer. And I would become more heart-centered. 
What I didn't know at the time, it's hard to accept, but here's the deal. This is something that Hazrat Nat Khan would teach, and that is that the heart is naturally soft, but over time it hardens. And one of the main ways that our heart becomes soft again is that it gets broken. And little did I know was that many of my choices in life were going to break my heart. But when I look back, I can be grateful that those were the opportunities for me to discover a softer heart. You know, after the heart gets broken, we then began a process of getting it hard again. Because we don't like that feeling. I don't like that feeling. It's a horrible feeling. But that's the place where we feel compassion, where we feel love, where we can find forgiveness both for ourselves and for others, where we find mercy, um, where we find many of the attributes of God is in the softness of the heart. So it was a blessing. It was a gift. Had my heart not softened up, I probably would not have been open to many of the things that I ended up exploring. That openness to what I did not know. So, that was cool. My salamander story. You know, I never have... There was a time when uh, I was looking up spirit animals. And I don't even recollect whether or not I looked up salamander as to what significance it might have. I'm not even sure that the people who write uh, the descriptions for a spiritual animal know exactly what they're talking about. But it is interesting, I suppose. And perhaps I'll take a look after I get done making this recording. Uh, but let's let go to that for now. One of the things that I'm trying to remember that I purchased this at Elijah's shop, and I'm I I can't recall um, I can't recall why I did this. Um, so I had gone to I think there was like a an outdoor uh, street fair or something. Um, maybe it was an old sack. I'm not sure where it was. But I remember I purchased a Native American flute, a wooden flute. One of the artists that Elijah shared with me was uh, Carlos Nakai, who plays a Native American flute. He's Native American, plays the flute beautifully. And I thought, gosh, that would be fun to learn. So I bought one for myself. And I've messed around with it off and on over the years. But that same day, I decided to go to the movies. There was a movie playing, and it was called Stigmata. Now, if you've never seen Stigmata, I'll try to tell the story without giving away a whole lot. But basically, there's a guy down in, I think, Mexico, who is an, who's a Catholic archaeologist who dies. And 
um, there's a little boy who's, I guess there's like an open casket kind of a thing. And he goes in there and he steals um, this Catholic archaeologist, I think he's a priest, steals his rosary, right? Um, and then I think sells it. In any event, this rosary makes its way to a young woman in New York City who um, comes from, I believe, a Catholic family, but no longer believes uh, in Christianity or Catholicism or any of that, right? Doing her own thing. But now she has this rosary. I think her mother uh, bought it and sent it to her. Well, um, she begins to have these strange experiences. Now, the stigmata. The stigmata are the marks of Jesus that he acquired through crucifixion that appear on very saintly, holy, devout people. St. Francis had the stigmata. Um, Padre Pio had the stigmata. And basically it's a nail hole in each hand, right? Nail hole in the feet. Um, you get like, uh, sometimes the, the, the marks of the crown of thorns on the head, you know. And then there's, you know, Jesus uh, received a spear in the side. So the story goes. And so these, um, these stigmata were starting to show up on this young woman. She was having very strange experiences. And with each one, she was getting weaker and weaker. And they were concerned that the next one would be the piercing of her side. And the spear went through the side and pierced the heart of Jesus. And they were afraid that was going to kill her. She also began speaking in a very in a foreign language that no one really understood. Um, and uh, another priest went to go visit her. I guess they were thinking that maybe she needed an exorcism or something. And she was writing on the wall this ancient script. Turns out that it's Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is the language that was spoke in the Middle East. It's it's still spoken, but not this particular dialect. It's the, in Galilee, the Galilean um, dialect of Aramaic. There's a Syriac up in Syria, Syriac Aramaic that I believe is still spoken, but not as much as it used to be. It's a dying, uh, it's a dying language. In any event, so she's writing here in Aramaic, and she's writing things that sound like something that comes from the Bible, but doesn't come from the Bible. So it turns out there's the, that, that, that she's writing these sayings of Jesus, right? And it turns out the archaeologist that had died was searching for this little book. It was called the Gospel of Thomas that had sayings of Jesus um, that predated the writings of the Gospels that are in the Bible. I'm not going to tell you how the movie ends. But I will tell you that many of these sayings show up at the end of the movie. They just, you know, put them up on the screen. And then it says, this book actually exists, the Gospel of Thomas, which absolutely blew my mind because I'd never heard of such a thing. So I uh, go on Google or, or somewhere and I get my first, oh no, actually, I think I got my first copy at the Garden of Enchantment where Elijah, 
That's Elijah's shop, Garden of Enchantment. And he had a big section of books, and I went back there, and sure enough, I found the Gospel of Thomas. And that was my first exposure to it. Um, it's part of a collection of parchments that were discovered uh, in a little place called Nag Hammadi in the Middle East. It is uh, conveniently called the Nag Hammadi Library. Uh, and the Gospel of Thomas is one of the texts that was discovered. Interestingly enough, one of the books that I acquired from my mom that I never opened and read was uh, the Nag Hammadi Library. Go figure. Um, And it was my first volume of the Gospel of Thomas. It's been translated many, many times. The original is written in Coptic, which is a language uh, from Egypt. So basically, the Egyptian language of hieroglyphics eventually turned into this writing called Coptic. And there's a Coptic church, in Ethiopia, big in Ethiopia, uh, but in northern Africa, basically. And uh, uh, I just began exploring this whole new world. This was back in the in the 90s, early days of the internet, and there were like, you know, chat rooms and groups of things. And um, so, you know, I went on the internet and I did a search for the Gospel of Thomas. I, I don't, you know, I don't remember whether Google was even around back in those days. Might have been, but it was a very early version of Google. And I found a group that discussed the Gospel of Thomas. Turns out these guys were like professors. They're very, very smart. And they were trying to see if there was like a hidden message. Because it's called the secret, the secret sayings of Jesus. And so basically this little volume, it contains uh, sayings of Jesus that were written down by Didymus Thomas or Thomas the twin. Uh, And it's just saying, so there's no narrative. There's no story. There's no crucifixion. There's no resurrection. These are just random sayings okay and so people were trying to try to get a handle on on what what are these about and i joined it and we discussed it over and over again as to what's going on there one of the things that i inherited through uh, the teachings of hazrat nayak khan and i'll see if i can find it and and i'll give you a quote i think i know where it is but he would he would, when people would come to him, right? And, but they'd been raised in another religious tradition. He would always encourage them to follow that religious tradition, whether it's Christianity or Islam or whatever it was, Hinduism. Because he said, Sufism is a practice that can be done by anybody. You can be a Buddhist and a Sufi and a Christian and a Sufi and you know, a Hindu and a Sufi and a Muslim and a Sufi, that Sufism was not an independent thing, all on its own autonomous. Well, it was, but it wasn't religious in that sense. So um, let me see if I can find that little book. I will be right back.
is. This is in volume 9, the Sufi message of Hazrat Naya Khan. And the title of this volume is The Unity of Religious Ideals. One of the things that he would teach, Hazrat Naya Khan would teach, was that um, there's a unity in religion, that the ideals behind religion were the same, only the details different. So let's see here. Okay, so this is the chapter on religion. It's in section two, and I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs. Here's what it says. It says, a person may belong to the best religion in the world. He does not live it, perhaps, but merely belongs to it. He says that he is a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew. He is sure it is the best religion, but at the same time he does not care to live it. He just belongs to it and thinks that belonging to a certain accepted religion is all that is needed. And people of all the different religions have made this appear to be so, owing to their enthusiasm enforced by their mission in life. For they have made facilities for those who belong to their particular religion, saying that by the very fact of their belonging to it, they will be saved on the day of judgment, while the others, with all their good actions, will not be saved, because they do not belong to that particular faith. This is a man-made idea, not God-made. God is not the father of one sect. God is the father of the whole world, and all are entitled to be called his children, whether worthy or unworthy. In fact, it is man's attitude toward God and truth which can bring him closer to God, who is the ideal of every soul. And if this attitude is not developed, then whatever a man's religion be, he has failed to live it. Therefore, what is important in life is to try and live the religion to which one belongs, or that one esteems, or that one believes to be one's religion. So, he encouraged people to, to really practice their, their faith. He says this, For the Sufi, therefore, the best thing is to respect a man's belief, his idea, his way of looking at life, whatever it may be, even if it is quite different from his own way of looking at it. It is this spirit of tolerance which, when developed, will bring about the brotherhood which is the essence of religion and the need of the present day. We do need unity. And I may not agree with everything now that he said there, but I do believe that we need unity. We need tolerance and understanding. You know, the idea of uh, condemning someone because they don't adhere to what I believe. Uh, it's not a good way to foment dialogue. It's not a good way to uh, to live in the world. You know, I uh, 
said I was going to talk a little bit about what this week meant to me. I remember waking up. I know on Wednesday, I uh, I knew Wednesday was going to be a big deal. You know, first of all, Tuesday, uh, January 5th, we had the election in Georgia, uh, which was a, a deal, real deal breaker. If the Republicans had won one of those races or both, they would have maintained control of the Senate. But if the Democrats won both of those seats, then by virtue of uh, Kamala Harris being vice president, she's the president of the Senate, she would be the one vote that would tip the scale because it would be 50-50. And then with uh, the vice president being that, that one, that would, the Democrats would gain control of the Senate. So it was a big deal. I knew that was going to be interesting, and I probably wouldn't actually know how things turned out until the following morning, which that's exactly what happened. So I woke up on on Wednesday with the news that um, both seats were called for the Democrats. And, um, you know, I uh, called one of my good friends, and we started a, a, a Zoom call just to talk about how we're doing. Actually, I think it was Skype. It was Skype. Yeah, Skype. And, uh, you know, we, we're just talking and having a, a normal good time. And uh, I got a notification on my phone that something was really going down in Washington, D.C. Now, I knew that this rally, there were rallies, and I knew that they'd been talked about for a long time, and I knew that the president had invited people to come to Washington, D.C. to protest and rally on the 6th of January when the Electoral College vote was going to be certified by Congress. What I didn't expect was what happened during the day. And it really occupied the rest of my, of my day. Um, I started watching reports of people storming the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. I kept hearing from commentators uh, that no one really understood why, how'd they get in? How did they get in? They didn't know how people got in, you know? And I, my first thought was, well, someone had to let them in. They didn't just walk in casually. They had to be let in. So that bothered me. Um, and I remember I got a call, another call from one of my friends. And I, I said, so do you know what's going on in the news? He goes, no, what's going on? He had no idea. So I said, turn the news on. And he was blown away by it. Um, so I just kept watching. I, I I couldn't believe what I was what I was seeing. You know, I'd lived through, you know, the I was a child. I was what uh, I was twelve in nineteen sixty eight for the Democratic National Convention and for that riot that went down in Chicago. I was alive for the Watts riots. I was alive for the riots around Rodney King. But I. I I never imagined I would see uh, the uh, occupation of the United States Capitol building in Washington, D.C. So it was hard. It was hard to watch. Um, you know, we've had a tough four years. 
um, lots of divisive rhetoric, lots of inciting of, unfortunately, I would say hate between people that don't see things the same way. And to me, what happened Wednesday wasn't just something that happened. This is something that has been building, um, and probably for more than just those last four years, you know, something that's been just churning in the United States for years and finally found a way forward, you know. It's like the, a volcano. You've got this hot mag magma that's underground, and eventually it finds some a, a crack or soft rock or something and starts making its way to the upper crust, um, little by little, it builds a volcano. And then when the pressure reaches the right opportunity, it erupts, it explodes. And, uh, you know, it's been uh, rumbling underneath for a long time in the United States. And we had a bit of an explosion on Wednesday. Fortunately, the Congress was able to complete uh, the ratification and certification of the election. And so um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be sworn in as president and vice president of the United States on January 20th. It could have gone way worse, but people had the foresight, some congressional aides had the foresight to grab the uh, the ballots and carry them out of the room and keep them safe. So that happened. You know, things are uh, a little bit quieter right now, but I am no longer under the illusion that this was the last we've seen. At some point, I forget what time it was on Wednesday night. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I said, okay, no more news till Thursday. And I stopped watching the news. I just couldn't, you know, the action had completed. There wasn't a lot going on. It was more of the pundits talking about things, trying to figure out what had happened, how did it happen, are people okay? There was a woman who was shot. She had, she lost her life. Um, we now know that four people um, lost their lives. We also know that a, a, a law enforcement officer has now died from his injuries that were sustained that day. Uh, a lot of injury, a lot of damage to property there that's the people's property, right? Um, and so I'm under no illusion that we've seen the end of things. Hopefully, over time, uh, it will change. But it's going to be, you know, I don't, it's not going to be our elected officials that turn the tide on our country. It's going to be us. We're going to have to do it. We're going to have to let our hearts be broken over the state of our country and begin to reach out to our brothers and sisters in America, in the United States of America, uh, to begin to heal and, and bring things together. You know, it's, uh, it's very sad that it got to this point, and uh, we have to be willing. We have to be willing to change. This cannot, you know... Maintaining the status quo will not is not going to help this country move forward.
You may not agree with what's happening, right? You may uh, not like the fact that the Democrats have control of the White House, House of Representatives, and the Senate right now. But that will change. One of the things, I mean, you look at the history of this country. One party does not stay in power forever, you know? Every four years you have an election, and if they win another term, then after eight years, you have a general, you know, it's open. It's an open election. Things will change. We've had Democrats, we've had Republicans, and even before that, we had, what, there were whips and Tories and all that stuff. It changes. Nothing stays the same forever. So, you know, we deal with what, we deal with the hand that was dealt, do the best we can, and we move forward. And if you want to change, then you work for change. Politics is not a spectator sport. Got to get your hands dirty. And by dirty, that means learning about the issues, uh, talking to people. You know, some people knock on doors. Some people make phone calls. You know, maybe you're the next person that needs to run for an elected office, whether it's locally or uh, the state or federal. I don't know. But uh, the future of our country is in our hands, not in the hands of our government. We elect our government. And so uh, we are responsible for that government. You know, there's an old saying that says, the people get the government they deserve. And I think we deserve better than what we're seeing right now. So uh, I encourage people to vote when you have the opportunity, but vote in an informed way, learn about the issues, learn about the people that are running, what they stand for, what the parties stand for. I was raised Republican, uh, became a Democrat. I'm now an independent because I just can't find a, uh, find a way forward. So to join a party, it's just not there for me. But I still stay engaged, you know. I still uh, vote, and I'm sometimes a little bit vocal in what I think is the right way to move forward. But my way is not every way, not everyone's way, right? It's my way. And some people agree with some of me and not all of me, and some people don't agree with me at all, and that's just the way it is. You know, everyone sees life differently based on how they were raised and um, what they learned educationally. Uh, so we're different. We're different. And, you know, part of that difference uh, needs to be embraced. And we need to learn to move forward because we have more alike than we have different. And uh, I think we can do it. I think we've done it in the past, and I think we can do it. So, um, I'll leave you with that note. I'll try to get Elijah. Maybe we can get Elijah for the next episode. That would be cool. If not, I will pick up with my uh, Gospel of Thomas stuff and, uh, and move forward as to how that propelled me back into uh, Christianity. So I'm going to sign off for now. This is Chris Jensen, and I'll be talking with you soon.
My Life and Welcome to It is produced by me, Chris Jensen. My technical consultant is David Patterson of Drowning Man Productions. David, along with three others, have a podcast called Wasting All the Time, and they provide improvisational comedy uh, for us to listen to. I would encourage you to check them out. The art for My Life and Welcome to It uh, is drawn by Dave Edwards. And if you're interested in any of other, uh, Dave's other art, um, you can find him on Instagram at EvilDaveTM. You can find this podcast wherever podcasts can be found. And I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can email me at MLAWTI101 at gmail.com. The music for Chasing After God, which is part of my life and welcome to it, is Skywards by Will Van de Cromert. Well, that's all for now. I look forward to spending some time with you again next Saturday. And until then, be safe, be well, and God bless. <laughs>